Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Every year, around about this time, we like to look back at some of the stories that had the biggest impact on the last 12 months. This time, it's quite easy to pick them. There are two wars going on, after all, in Ukraine and in the Middle East. And US-China tensions have gotten slightly better, but from a very low baseline. I wanted to put all of that to Stephen Walt, one of our most popular columnists. Walt is a professor at Harvard University, and he's one of the world's best-known realists. Now, this is wonky, but just to explain it, realism is a school of thought in international relations that emphasizes that leaders of nation-states make rational choices in the best interests of their people, and those choices are often in conflict with those of other countries. Sounds pretty much like the world we're in right now. This is becoming an annual FP tradition with Walt. So we're going to spend this episode looking back at 2023, and we'll take some of your questions. The next one, we'll look at the year ahead. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We take some questions from subscribers, as you know. You can do that too if you sign up on foreignpolicy.com. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. And if you like what you're hearing, rate us. Okay, let's dive in. Stephen Walt, welcome back. Uh, nice to be with you again, Ravi. Last year, when we did our look-ahead discussion, uh, I got you to make some predictions. And I was imagining that one year on, I would tell you how you got everything wrong. But actually, you didn't. And I looked back, and here's one thing. You said the world is underweighting certain risks. That's a question I put to you. You And then you said that I worry, these are your words, I worry that in supporting Ukraine and in hoping for the best outcome, we are understating the possibility that a year from now, Putin is still in power, the Russian military is actually doing quite well, and the Ukrainian forces are at the end of their strength. That was your worry exactly one year ago. Is that what happened in 2023? Yeah, to a first approximation, that's exactly what happened. And uh, I'm sorry to say that because it's not a prediction I wanted to see occur, but it is, uh, in fact, what happened. And it wasn't, uh, in fact, I think all that unlikely. I mean, 2022 ended on sort of an up note for the Ukrainians. They had achieved some tactical gains in a couple of offensives. And so people were feeling pretty good. And they also had the good fortune of a relatively mild winter. Uh, which undermined uh, the Russian campaign, uh, you know, against their power grid and, and things like that. But 2023 has gone badly for Ukraine by any stretch. Uh, they lost the battle for Bakhmut at some considerable cost to them, also cost to the Russians. But remember, Russians have uh, much deeper reserves than the Ukrainians do. And then the vaunted uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, now it's clear failed to achieve uh, either its you know, sort of tactical objectives or its larger strategic objectives. 
Um, and with the prospect, we can talk about this in you know our future session, but the prospect of diminishing external uh, support for Ukraine, now we get to December of 2023 and things are not looking good for Ukraine at all. We're seeing signs of internal dissension that have been largely muted uh, for the past uh, couple of years uh, within the Ukrainian government. Even Zelensky has now called for the Ukrainians to focus more on defensive preparations rather than renewed offensives, which I think is, again, an indication that they understand they're increasingly beleaguered. So, you know, I'm sorry to say that that was a prediction from last year uh, that unfortunately has come true. Mm. You know, since at least this part of the conversation is mostly looking back at 2023, what do you think uh, the West or, say, Washington has, where have they faltered? What mistakes have they made that have led us to this point where the outlook for Ukraine is as bleak as you're portraying it to be? I think there were a couple of mistakes. Again, uh, you know, opinion has shifted back and forth uh, rather dramatically. People uh, initially thinking Russia was going to win easily, then I think uh, succumbing to over-optimism uh, when things didn't go Russia's way at first, and in fact, the Ukrainians uh, were doing relatively well. When the Ukrainians were doing well, as a number of people, including, I believe, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said that was the time to start getting serious uh, about a negotiation. So if you look back, uh, you could argue that the United States should have taken the possibility of a negotiated settlement more seriously early on. And of course, we now know that there were negotiations uh, in March of 2022 that were making some progress that might have ended the war very quickly. That opportunity was squandered. Then when the Ukrainians did well in the fall of 2022, that might have been another opportunity to press for some kind of ceasefire, some kind of an agreement. And then finally, the third error, I think, uh, and this was a, a, a error of much of the pundit class, was to believe that the Ukrainian offensive was going to succeed, make dramatic gains, possibly a breakthrough against some very well-prepared Russian defenses. I think if you looked at what the Ukrainians actually had, the amount of time and training uh, they'd been able to receive, and the formidable nature of the Russian defenses, it was never very likely that they were going to succeed. And some of us said that uh, back at the time, but that was largely ignored. That unfortunately squandered a lot of uh, Ukrainian military strength and has left them in a position now where I think they have to fight on the defensive and hope for the best. It's often forgotten that offense is actually much harder than defense in these kinds of conflicts. So here's another thing we discussed one year ago, uh, the Middle East. And you said one year ago that the United States and Israel would have a quote-unquote difficult relationship, and they have. What we didn't expect, I think what no one predicted, was that Hamas would blow things up the way that it did. How much did that surprise you? Uh, it surprised me completely. Uh, I didn't anticipate this. A number of people, and I think I said this in one of uh, my columns, I'm not sure if it was last year, a number of people had pointed out that the Abraham Accords and the renewed push for some kind of normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia was leaving one critical actor out of the equation, was leaving the Palestinian problem off to one side, and people were sort of pretending it had gone away and was no longer going to cause trouble anymore. And of course, we were all wrong. Perhaps uh, the person most famously wrong, of course, was Jake Sullivan, who 
unfortunately published an article in Foreign Affairs, uh, I think roughly a week before October 7th, saying the Middle East had never been, uh, you know, quite as peaceful or quite as tranquil. Uh, th this was in the print edition, which was later updated online after October 7th. Go that's, ahead. that's exactly right. Um, but that was just an indication that nobody really saw this coming. And of course, there's been lots of finger pointing in Israel about the intelligence failures and other political failures that led to the tragedy that befell them on October 7th. But nobody saw this one coming. And I think, uh, you know, as we're now seeing the ripple effects of this conflict on conflicts elsewhere, on the American image, on the U.S.-Israeli relationship uh, are all quite profound. The only point I might correct is to say that, that, you know, I said that there would be frictions between the United States and Israel. Um, there have been some, but since the conflict broke out, the Biden administration has basically been 100% four square behind Israel, has made some, I think, rather cosmetic gestures to try and get some moderation without much uh, effect. There may be anger within the administration that the Israelis aren't listening, but you're not seeing much daylight in public uh, between the administration and the Netanyahu government. So let me ask you if you had to grade the Biden administration's response to events in the Middle East after October 7, how would you assess their performance? And, you know, on this program, uh, Rashid Khalidi, the Columbia University professor, he gave the Biden administration an F minus. So he kind of went off the scale, as it were. But then we've also had Aaron David Miller and Stephen Simon write in foreign policy that, you know, Biden faced a really tough situation and all things considered, he did about as well as you could expect. Where do you stand on this? Yeah. Um, well, it depends, I think, on the assumptions you make going in as to whether or not he did as well as uh, he could, you could expect. I think, first of all, uh, the American posture here uh, of essentially, you know, a full embrace uh, of Israel, uh, increased military aid while they're prosecuting uh, a war, primarily a war uh, where civilians are suffering uh, enormously. And this is all happening in full view of the rest of the world. I think this has been enormously damaging uh, to the American image in the world. Um, as a number of people have pointed out, the sort of contrast between our response in Ukraine and our response in uh, Gaza is not lost on others. The other difficulty here is that this war is now being prosecuted to no good purpose. Uh, there's little chance that Israel is going to wipe out Hamas, or if it does manage to, to deal with Hamas, there will be another resistance movement uh, that will emerge. You're not going to be able to expunge the Palestinian desire for their own state by bombing uh, civilians. Uh, and of course, bombing civilians tends to promote gre greater resistance. It doesn't lead people to decide that they uh, that they want to uh, simply accept their fate or, or anything like that. So we're seeing enormous humanitarian suffering, but to no good strategic purpose. Uh, and when this is finally over, of course, we're going to still be left with the larger political problem of how the seven and a half million Palestinians and the seven and a half million uh, Jewish Israelis are going to share or coexist within essentially the same territory. To do that, as everyone has known for 30 or 40 years, you need a two-state solution. And in order to get a two-state solution, you would need a sea change in U.S. policy where the United States put pressure on both sides and a lot of pressure on both sides uh, to get a deal 
That involves, of course, a rebuilt Palestinian authority, something, of course, that the Netanyahu government opposes. Uh, but that sea change in American policy is not going to happen uh, for all of the reasons that Rashid Halidi and Aaron David Miller and Steve Simon all know. It has mostly to do with American domestic politics. So there is a solution here, uh, but it's not a solution we are likely to see and uh, and certainly not anytime soon. Mm. So I have to ask, since you are a Harvard professor and your university and universities at large have been dragged into this big national debate about how they're handling protests and the mood on campuses. And you wrote a really interesting piece about this, making the case for why universities shouldn't take sides in a war. Talk about that a little bit, especially the uh, Calvin report. Right. Well, the Calvin Report was a report issued by a committee at the University of Chicago in the 1960s at a period of great uh, social and political upheaval here in the United States. The war in Vietnam was underway, the civil rights movement, uh, there were you know, riots in American cities. And the Calvin Report tried to lay out, and I think does very successfully, lay out what the role of the university is in our society. Uh, universities are first and foremost producers of knowledge. And in order to be able to pursue knowledge in the uh, widest possible way, you have to have a very free environment where people can pursue ideas freely, see where they might go, debate them vigorously and without restraint. But uh, very importantly, the report notes that the instrument for this questioning of practices and the exploration of ideas. It's the individual faculty or individual student. It's not the university as a whole. As soon as a university starts to take a position on an issue like um, affirmative action or abortion rights or whether or not to attack Iraq or anything like that, it immediately has a chilling effect. Once the university as an official organized body takes that a position, there's an individual faculty or individual students who might disagree with that view uh, are going to be feeling some pressure to silence or moderate their remarks, and then you don't get the free exploration of ideas. The other problem, of course, is that once a university takes a position on a single issue, whatever that issue might be, it immediately creates the burden of having to respond to every other issue that comes along. The line forms around the block to get a university to weigh in on what to do about the next problem. And if a, the university then remains silent on the next issue, that's perceived as having taken a position, even if only implicitly. So as an organized collectivity, the university should not have a particular position. Individual faculty, can and should, students can take whatever positions they want. And of course, by doing so, they invite criticism, right? They're gonna get challenged, that's fine. That's part of how we learn collectively. And I feel that universities in the United States have erred uh, by weighing in on some issues, which of course then immediately creates pressure uh, to weigh in on others. And we've seen this play out uh, at a number of different universities, including Harvard, and in ways that I think have led to enormous confusion about uh, the role of the university and also have unfortunately now the effect of starting to stifle free speech at universities and stifle academic freedom, which I think would be very harmful to the university and ultimately to the United States as well, because it's the open debate and free exchange of ideas that allows us to identify when we're going off course, when we need to have a course correction, 
once you start censoring opinion, censoring speech, uh, you're likely to have imposed orthodoxies and then uh, things that are wrong don't get corrected. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website. That's foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So we've been discussing two big wars and their impacts uh, on the lands that they're being fought on, um, but also on university campuses. Let me zoom out a lot more now for the rest of this conversation. And um, with these two wars that we've been discussing, what kinds of strains are you seeing them create in the global order? And, you know, earlier in this conversation, you you mentioned that it is not lost on the rest of the world that you know, the United States and the West has been responding to these two wars in very different ways. And I'm guessing you're referring there to what is known as the so-called Global South, which has really emerged, I think, in in the last 18 months or so, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, whether you like the phrase or not, the term or not, it's emerged as a group with more clout in terms of how they organize themselves and how they collectively seem to be asking for certain things at global convenings like the climate conference that's going on right now uh, or the United Nations or elsewhere. When you look at all of this, what what kinds of strains are you seeing emerging? Well, I think the, the principal strain, and you see it with both Ukraine and also Gaza, is a deeper awareness of hypocrisy. Uh, one way of putting it is that the rule-based order that the United States has touted uh, is now, I think, perceived as being full of holes. Um, the first time I really observed this was actually at the Munich Security Conference last year, where the gulf between how Westerners were talking about the war in Ukraine and how people from the global south, to use that term, were talking about it was quite striking. It's not that people from the global south were defending Russia's invasion or were sympathetic to the Russian position. They just didn't see that conflict as the be-all and end-all, as the place where the future of freedom was at stake. Their view was that there were lots of equally important conflicts elsewhere that the West was paying relatively little attention to. So the selective attention uh, troubled them. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, it was reported that there are 7 million displaced people in the Democratic Republic of Congo, most of them displaced by violence. This is barely noticed in American newspapers devoting page after page of coverage to Ukraine uh, or to Gaza. Uh, and uh, we have, you know, a tragic civil war taking place in Sudan and again, getting relatively little attention uh, from the outside world. So first is the, the sense of selective attention, and then second, the sense of hypocrisy, that we talk a lot about democracy, we talk a lot about human rights, uh, et cetera. And then if you actually look at US practice or the practice of some of our, our allies, it doesn't live up to those standards. So I think both of those have contributed to a growing sense that the Western notion of world order that we've been trying to defend, and then I might add the Biden administration has been particularly vocal about claiming that it stands for is looking pretty tattered right now. And that, of course, opens up a much wider discussion with the global south, but also with countries like China about what a proper world order 
should be and where our image of what that world order ought to be is no longer the default condition that others are likely to accept uncritically. Mm. I really like how you positioned that. Um, you said countries have a deeper awareness of hypocrisy. So hypocrisy wasn't invented in 2023. It's age old, really. Double That's standards right. are age old. It's just that in the last 18 months or so, an awareness of it has deepened. Right. And in part because these events are so visible and the Western response has been both so strident in some cases, uh, but also so inconsistent in others. Mm. And also these other countries that are making these claims are rising as powers. It's not just China, India and Indonesia and Brazil and all these other countries that you mentioned as well about conflicts that stay off of the front pages uh, of, of the mostly Western press. But linked to all of this, and since we're looking back at the year that was, around the time of the UN General Assembly, uh, Gordon Brown, who's a former British prime minister, uh, he published a piece in Foreign Policy arguing that multilateralism as we know it is broken. Um, he made the case that we need to fix it because if you have a big global crisis like another pandemic or an asteroid hitting the earth, you need a place like the United Nations that could deal with it in a way that's equitable to all countries. You need the World Bank. You need the IMF. If these things didn't exist, we'd reinvent them. But to do all of this, the case he was making, and I think the, the point of his essay was that the United States needed to rejuvenate multilateralism. In other words, that over the last year, it's really prioritized regional arrangements, bilateral arrangements, smaller groups like the G7, which American policymakers really rely on a fair bit these days. Um, and in other words, it's deprioritizing uh, the United Nations. And that seems to me uh, a big thing that emerged in 2023, in that the United Nations just seems utterly broken and utterly divided. And yet, in some senses, the need for it is greater than it's ever been. That is unfortunately a, a sort of tragic paradox. Uh, and I, I like the way you put it, uh, you know, never needed as much, uh, but also uh, never as ineffectual. Some of that, of course, reflects the sort of broader geopolitical trends, right? The uh, division between the United States and China, I think, makes that uh, problem worse. Uh, the tacit alliance between China and Moscow and their sort of united opposition to what they see as a, a U.S.-led unipolar order as well. Some of that reflects the sort of legacy status of some UN institutions, most notably the Security Council, whose permanent members reflect uh, a balance of power that is 75 years out of date where almost everyone understands it needs to change and no one can agree on exactly how to change it. So you have an institution that is no longer fit for purpose, but can't easily be, uh, be modified. And it's hard even to sketch out a process by which you would start rebuilding or reshaping some of those institutions uh, to make them uh, more relevant. Given that, it's not surprising that uh, 
China starts to try and develop parallel institutions to the ones uh, that exist, and that the United States falls back on the institutions where it has uh, greater influence. We suddenly want to rely very heavily on NATO, where we feel like we have lots of influence uh, as well. We want to rely on the G7, having you know thrown Russia out uh, temporarily, we'll rely on like-minded countries, and that's a phrase you hear uh, a lot now as well. And of course, we like to rely on bilateral ties with other countries because almost in all circumstances, those are countries uh, where we're stronger than they are as well. All of these things, I think, contribute to the fragmenting of the existing global order. And I don't see anything that's likely to reverse that process, even though I agree with uh, you know, the former prime minister that uh, a return to somewhat greater multilateralism would be useful. I mean, one of the big events in 2023 that we didn't talk about at all a year ago was artificial intelligence, mm. uh, where suddenly this technological achievement, which had been in the works for a while, but hadn't been fully appreciated, burst forth and people became immediately aware of the potentially revolutionary implications in a variety of industries for society uh, more generally, certainly on the battlefield uh, in, in a variety of ways. And that is actually interesting to think about when you start thinking about how human beings are going to try to manage this technology, which has to be done on a global scale. You can't just manage it in one country because this is a technology that others are going to be developing in a variety of ways. And I, I guess I'm pessimistic because humanity's track record at limiting or channeling technological development particularly when it's decentralized and when it's happening very, very rapidly, is not particularly good. Right? So here's a task that the global community, if such a thing exists, really needs to tackle. And yet it's hard to imagine even what institutions would A, be appropriate for tackling it or how they could get a leash on this potential monster before it's already out and having a, a big impact. Um, so if you ask me, so big events in 2023, uh, that's another one. Uh, we didn't see it coming, but we're going to be talking about it for a long time. Yeah, indeed. And uh, as you mentioned, the the tension between trying to compete, but also regulate at the same time is is really playing out uh, in real time around the world. I'll mention to everyone watching this and listening this that um, FP's uh, summer print issue was about exactly this issue. We focused on AI. I mean, had some terrific essays there that were examining, you know, how semiconductors, for example, have just turned into, the, into this big frontier of global competition, um, creates a world of haves and have-nots, and also how AI is beginning to be used in the battlefield, um, just dramatic advances there that really could shape how countries are able to predict how their opponents might act uh, in war situations. But Stephen, uh, on the issue of um, things that defined 2023 or things that were undercovered in 2023, we've discussed the wars. Uh, I'm going to take us to discuss China in a minute. But what else strikes you as a story or a trend in the last year that has stayed with you? Well, obviously, uh, you know, 2023 was the warmest year on record, right? And we are now have COP28 underway as we are speaking. And I would say underway with surrounded by a bit more controversy. Uh, you know, it's always been a politically contentious forum, but this year seems to be heightened a bit more 
uh, partly by some of the statements that the head of COP28, Sultan al-Jaber, has said, uh, appearing to question some of the science behind uh, climate change. The uh, fact that it's being held in Dubai uh, was seen by some, at least, as indicative that it was not likely to make uh, much progress in weaning the planet off of fossil fuels. So we have this interesting juxtaposition of greater evidence of the importance of climate change, the damaging effects it's had here in the United States. We spent the summer uh, dealing with smoke from wildfires in Canada, which had enormous damage. And you can point to similar events happening in lots of other parts of the world. Uh, increasingly clear that climate change is going to have very far-reaching and for the most part destructive effects on human society. And yet the one global institution we have for trying to address this doesn't appear to be working particularly well. That to me is a, a very big story for 2023 and one that again, is, we'll be talking about next year and the year after that and for a long time to come. Mm, indeed. You mentioned uh, Sudan, you mentioned the DRC. What, what, what do you think is the most undercovered story uh, in 2023? And uh, I will take the criticism. Have I? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's undercovered. Uh, I mean, the other issue that I th I'll say two, and they're kind of connected. Uh, one is, I think, you know, in 2023, we saw additional evidence that the question of migration and refugees is just central to a lot of what's happening in politics. You know, here in the United States, we would refer to it as the border crisis. So uh, suddenly, uh, American aid to Ukraine is being held up in part because the Republican Party wants a particular set of deals on the so-called border crisis here. There is a geopolitical issue, American support for Ukraine, that is being linked to a migration issue. Uh, we also see it all over the world, uh, the emergence and this uh, continued presence of populist parties in different places is in part a reaction to uh, the migration crisis. So uh, Gerd Wilder's political successes in the Netherlands in part reflect this concern that foreigners are somehow you know, getting into Europe and that's gonna have uh, terrible cultural effects, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like no one has talked about it, but it seems to me that that always lands on page 10 or page 11 of the newspaper and not, you know, page one, column one, uh, unless there's a particular issue happening, say in, in the US Congress. Uh, so that's one that I think, you know, deserves continued attention, partly because of the direct human consequences of refugee flows, and partly because it's affecting uh, our politics in a variety of pretty obvious ways. You were going to mention one more. What was the other one? Oh, well, I was going to say, then, then it's sort of the, there's this interesting story, a good news, bad news story on what I, you might call populist nationalism. So there it's sort of a mixed record. I think what it tells you is it's not going to take over and it's not going to go away. Um, on the one hand, you could point to the Polish elections and say, here was a case where a country moved away from a sort of very rigid uh, nationalist um, populism uh, in the direction of sort of more of a multilateral and uh, rules-based and EU-oriented uh, position. Uh, so that was good news. The elections in the Netherlands, you might see as bad news. The election in Argentina, uh, depending a, a little bit on how the new government actually behaves, might be seen as a sign of things going in the wrong direction. And of course, we still have the U.S. election uh, to come next year. 
again, my conclusion of this is, you know, populist nationalism of the sort we've seen for now a decade or more uh, is not going away. Um, it may not be taking over, but it's a fact of life in our politics and not just here in the United States, but in many other democracies as well. Mm. Well, this is a good moment for me to tell people watching and listening that FP's winter 2024 print issue is about exactly this issue. It's about a year of elections that is coming up. And we'll discuss that, Stephen, in our in our next session when we look at the year ahead. But just to quickly plug, uh, there's a terrific essay in that package by the Princeton academic uh, Pratap Bhanumetha, who really sort of examines the impact of nationalism on a range of elections around the world and just how so many populists seem to be drawing on issues of membership, of memory, uh, and seem to be skeptical of globalization in a way that's quite new and seems to be this sort of cocktail that's coming together all at once uh, to affect elections everywhere. We've managed to have a, a pretty lengthy discussion without talking about China at any great length, which is amazing. But quickly, um, just looking back at 2023, what has surprised you about the way China's economy has performed, the way its politics have delivered? How have you been reading it? Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's been surprising. I mean, many people have predicted for a long time now that the Chinese economy was going to slow. And I think 2023 was the year where a lot of these things all came together. Uh, some of it self-inflicted wounds, uh, Xi Jinping's decision to emphasize political control over economic growth and the market. Um, some of it is demographic, right? The, as people have predicted for a long time, and an older population, a declining workforce was going to have a, a you know, drag effect on the Chinese economy. Um, and then there's been some internal disarray that you've seen with uh, the head of the rocket forces being deposed, the foreign minister being removed, sort of without a good explanation uh, being provided. So the dramatic slowdown of the Chinese economy, the fact that it didn't have a big post-COVID uh, rebound, I think surprised many people. And that, of course, I think has led to two uh, further developments. One, uh, something of a Chinese charm offensive towards the outside world, attempting to convince global businessmen to keep uh, investing in China, keep trading with China as well, an attempt to mend some of the relations that may have been strained, uh, you say with Australia and with some European countries as well. And then we finally saw this culminate in the, let's call it tactical adjustment between the United States and China when uh, Xi and President Biden met in San Francisco. I don't think there was any uh, rapprochement or even detente there. Uh, both sides clearly staking out positions and recognizing they're going to remain rivals. But there was something of an attempt to lower the temperature a, a little bit. Um, and I think that also reflects the Chinese sense that for the moment, uh, they're maybe not quite as triumphant as they may have felt a decade or more, and that it was time for them to uh, you know, cool their jets a little bit. Uh, without abandoning some of their larger strategic ambitions. Mm. So, um, Stephen, you have many fans uh, in the FP ecosystem who've been writing in with their questions, and I've actually been peppering them sort of through uh, my own questions and, and relying on them. But here's one from Max, who's a, a frequent reader of your columns, and he says, there seemed to be a moment a few years ago where a realist perspective on foreign policy was ascendant. 
So Obama's restraint in Syria and Ukraine, Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, Trump redefining U.S. relations with NATO to better serve U.S. core interests, etc. This is all Max, uh, in his words. Has that moment passed, he asks? Um, I don't think uh, completely. Uh, certainly the Biden administration doesn't embrace what I would call a sort of traditional realist view, and certainly not in its rhetoric. I mean, when they came in and said that their organizing principle was going to be democracies versus autocracies, uh, that's not the way a realist would normally define uh, interests or uh, not a framing that they would consider particularly useful as a guiding template for American foreign policy. Now, in practice, you know, Biden's policies have been not so much consistent with that. Uh, the fact that, you know, the fist bump heard around the world uh, with Mohammed bin Salman was inconsistent uh, with this idea of democracy versus autocracy, uh, and I think reflected a sort of realist calculations of certain national security interests. Certainly the uh, export controls uh, focused on China have a very realist element to them. They're all about relative power and technological uh, advantage as well. So there's always been a, a realist element within American foreign policy. The question is what priority it gets and I think that we're still a long way from some of the prescriptions that uh, I and other realists have recommended for adjusting American commitments, uh, whether it's in the Middle East or the particular nature of our relationship with Europe, uh, et cetera. So we, we have a ways to go uh, before we're back to a world where, uh, you know, realism has a really loud voice on American foreign policy. And that was Stephen Walt, an FP columnist and professor at Harvard University. Next week, more Walt. You've heard him look back at 2023. Next week, we're going to cast ahead to 2024. That's a much tougher assignment. 2024 is going to be a year of elections around the world. And of course, one of them will loom larger than others. Remember, you can watch these conversations live if you're a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount when you log on to our website, foreignpolicy.com. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live in video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.